Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 18 from God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew with John and Elizabeth Sherrill. Chapter 18 for Russia with Love. Hans had listened with great interest to these recollections, interrupting occasionally with questions. When I came to the end of them, he offered one of his blunt and faith-filled prayers that we be led to Ivanhoff again, since the contact was now made and a relationship begun. I think it's time for a break, Andy, he added. I'd like a cup of coffee. So would I. Up ahead was a break in a tall hedgerow through which we plunged, scarcely noticing that there was already an automobile parked off the road there its occupants enjoying a picnic lunch. We pulled to a stop and began to get out our gear. It seemed to me that the Russians in the other car were behaving in a most unfriendly way. They kept glaring in our direction and muttering. The man threw half a cup of tea on the ground, complaining, while the two women began to pile plates, fruit, half-eaten loaves of bread into a straw basket. We were still wondering what this was all about when all at once there was a screeching of brakes from the other side of the hedge. Car door slammed, and suddenly we were confronted by two uniformed police. They stood in the opening in the hedge, hands on hips, glancing quickly over both parties. Then one officer came toward us while the other went over to the Russian car. How do you do? said Hans, smiling brightly at this opportunity to use his Russian. The officer did not reply, and Hans's face fell. He just doesn't want to be sociable, said Hans, returning pointedly to his coffee. Knowing Hans, however, I knew that he was praying hard. This man must not begin poking around inside our automobile. Even as we prayed, the officer abruptly left us and walked over to join his companion, at the other car, there was an exchange of heated words, a shrug, and then the Russians began to unload their automobile. We watched for twenty minutes while those poor people took everything that could be removed out of their car and spread it on the ground. Then the officers looked inside the motor, inside the trunk, underneath the car. We knew that somehow we were responsible for the discomfort they were being put to, but we did not know what to do about it, so we just stirred our coffee until it was cold. About after half an hour, when the officers still had not so much as gl glanced in our direction, we decided it was time to try leaving, so we drank the awful coffee, stowed the little stove away, and made as much noise as we could, closing doors and finally, starting the engine, still the officers paid no attention to us. We crept through the hedge and nosed back onto the highway around the police car. What was that all about, said Hans, as we were underway? I don't know, unless they thought we were smugglers making an exchange there beside the road. Hans, we've got to pray for that family, that they don't get into trouble through our clumsiness. And it's something to remember when it comes time for us to get rid of our cargo. 
The avenues of Moscow were enormous, wide enough to carry ten cars abreast, and they were more heavily traveled than I remembered. We passed the huge gum store, drove through vast red square, passed the mausoleum, and eventually made our way to the campsite that had been assigned to us. Right away we pitched our igloo-shaped tent and prepared to take out at least a few of our Bibles. Don't look now, Hans said, but we've got prying eyes. Without looking up, I tossed a road map on top of the two Bibles I had taken out. Then, casually, I glanced around and saw the man. He was wearing a green fatigue uniform and stood a few feet away from the car watching us. I got out our coffee pot, and Hans and I started preparing a rather unwanted cup of coffee. As soon as we had stopped unpacking the Bibles, the prying eyes walked away. What do you make of it? I asked Hans. I don't like it. I wish we could get rid of this cargo. We took just one of the Bibles, locked the car, and left the campsite. It was Thursday night, the night of the midweek service at the Baptist church that we had been heading for. There were about 1,200 people attending the Thursday night prayer meeting. The form of the service was much the same as the one I had attended two years earlier. I did not see Ivanhoff either on the platform or in the part of the congregation I could see. When the meeting was over, Hans and I walked out to the vestibule and began milling about in the crowd. The main purpose of the evening for us was to make contacts to whom we could deliver our supply of Bibles. I edged my way around the big entrance hall, glancing into face after face, asking God to give me, as he had so often before, that moment of recognition that, for Christians, can do the work of many years of acquaintance and growing confidence. And before long I saw him, a thin, balding man in his middle forties, standing against a wall and staring into the crowd. I had such a clear directive to speak to him that I almost forgot about Hans. But in a real Christian partnership, one member's guidance is always submitted to the others for correction and confirmation. So I waited until Hans had inched his great bulk over to my side. I've spotted our man, he said before I could speak, and out of the hundreds of people in that vestibule, he nodded to the man I too had chosen. Hearts high, we pushed our way to him. Cut van Puzzi Hans began. Cut van Puzzi the man answered, instantly alert. As Hans launched into a description of who we were and where we were from, however, the man's face grew more and more perplexed. But when Hans came to the word Dutch, he burst out laughing. He told us that he himself was German. He was a second-generation immigrant living in Siberia, and his family still spoke German in the home. Immediately, the three of us fell into conversation, and as we talked, Hans and I grew more and more incredulous. 
for this man was from a little church in Siberia, 2,000 miles away, where there were 150 communicants, but not a single Bible. One day, he had been told in a dream to go to Moscow, where he would find a Bible for his church. He resisted the idea at first, he said, for he knew as well as anyone that there were precious few Bibles in Moscow, and that was the end of his story. Hans and I looked at each other in disbelief. I gave Hans a nod, and it was his turn to share with our Siberian friend the good news. You were told to come eastward for 2,000 miles to get a Bible, and we were told to go westward 2,000 miles carrying Bibles to churches in Russia, and here we are tonight, recognizing each other the instant we meet. And with this, Hans held out the big Russian Bible we had brought along with us. The Siberian was without words. He held the Bible at arm's length and stared at it, and then at the two of us, and then at the Bible again. All of a sudden, the dam burst, and a flow of thank yous and bear hugs followed until we had drawn a group of onlookers. I was sorry for that. I hadn't wanted to attract attention. In a whisper, I told the fellow the rest of the news, that we had more Bibles, and that if he would meet us there again at ten o'clock the next morning, we would let him half, have half a dozen to take home. The Siberian grew suddenly suspicious. They are free of charge? Of course, we answered. This is simply one arm of the church looking after the needs of another. The next morning at nine o'clock, Hans posted guard while I, be, while I again tried to get the Bibles out of their hiding place in the car. I was no more than halfway through when Hans whistled the Dutch national anthem, and I knew that our friend in the green uniform was back. With a sigh, I went to work making coffee. Coffee's ready, I shouted to Hans. He came over and took an ice-cold cup of liquid from my hands. He's back, I asked. Just as nosy as yesterday. He's suspicious about something. How many did you get out? Four. Well, that'll have to do. Slip slip them in the flight bag and bags and let's go. Owning a Bible for your own personal use was no crime, but commerce and smuggling Bibles was illegal, and it was dangerous to look as if you might be dealing in contraband. So we put just four Bibles in our KLM bags and strolled down the lane to the bus stop. At precisely ten o'clock, we walked into the church and sat down on a bench near the door. At ten-thirty, we were feeling anxious and very conspicuous, and then at ten-forty-five, a voice spoke at my elbow. Hello, brother. I whirled around. It was not the man from Siberia. It was Ivanhoff, the pastor I had met on my previous visit to Moscow. Are you waiting for someone? asked Ivanhoff. I, we, yes, someone we met here last night. Ivanhoff was silent for a moment. Then, yes, he said softly, that's what I was afraid of. Your Siberian friend cannot come. What do you mean, cannot come? Ivanhoff looked around. My friends, he said, at each service there are secret police. We count on it. 
They saw you and this man talking, and so he cannot come. He has been spoken to, but you have brought something for him? I looked at Hans. Could Ivanhoff be trusted? Hans gave a shrug, and then a barely perceptible nod. Yes, I said briefly. Four Bibles in these bags. Leave them with me. I will see that he gets them. Again, Hans and I exchanged glances, but we ended by talking, by taking the Bibles wrapped in newspaper out of the bags and handing them over. Then, asking God for protection, I took a plunge. There seemed to be no other way. Is there somewhere we can talk? I asked. Talk? Well, frankly, these aren't the only Bibles we have. Ivanhoff caught his breath. What do you mean? Just keep your voice low. How many Bibles do you have? Over a hundred. You are joking. They're in our car at the camp. Ivanhoff thought for a moment. Then, without a word, he led us down a long corridor. When it turned a corner, he stopped suddenly, laid the Bibles on the floor, and held out his hands, palms down. Do you see the, those nails? he said. We stared at fingernails, ridged and thickened, the way nails become when they have been damaged due deep in their roots. I have spent my time in prison for the faith, Ivanhoff said, and this was the man who had told the visiting youth delegation that there was no religious persecution in Russia. I will be frank with you. I cannot go through it again. I cannot help you with those Bibles. I felt my heart go out to this man. I know, I said. We do not blame you. Perhaps, though, you know of someone else who might be willing? Markov, said Ivanhoff. I will arrange with him to rent an automobile. He will meet you in front of the gum store at precisely one o'clock. And then, as an afterthought, but be careful. Hans pointed to the little stack of Bibles on the floor. What about these? Don't you risk something taking these? Ivanhoff smiled, but his eyes remained as sad as ever. Four Bibles, he said. That's not a very serious economic crime. They're worth 400 rubles. How long do you go to jail for 400 rubles? Four months, at the most. But a hundred Bibles? That's worth 10,000 rubles here in Mo Moscow. More in the provinces. 10,000 rubles worth of pornograph pornographic literature. Why, a man could... Pornography, said both Hans and I together. What does that have to do with us? Nothing, said Ivanhoff, except that if you are caught, that's what they'll accuse you of selling. And then, as if receiving some sort of signal, he whirled on his heels, snatched the books from the floor, and walked rapidly away, his shoes clicking down the empty corridor as he disappeared from sight. That afternoon, at one o'clock, we pulled up in front of the gum store. A man emerged from a car parked a hundred yards away and strolled by, looking at us cautiously through the window. Then he strolled back again. Brother Andrew? You're Markov, I said. Greetings in the name of the Lord. We're going to do something very bold, said Markov, talking rapidly. 
We're going to exchange the Bibles within two minutes of Red Square. No one will ever suspect us in such a location. It's a stroke of genius. Clearly, this brother was more of a genius than I. I didn't like the sound of it. He led us to a street that was, sure enough, less than two minutes from Red Square. There was a large blind wall running along one side of the street. The houses lined the other. At any window, there could be a pair of curious eyes. You'd better pray, I said to Hans as I parked behind Markov's car. Hans did pray aloud as I got at the Bibles and stowed them an arm load at a time into cartons and sacks. Markov opened the rear door to his car and we made the transfer right out in the open, trip after trip on the busy sidewalk. When we were finished, Markov allowed himself time only for a quick handshake apiece before he was back in his car, starting the engine. By next week, he said, these Bibles will be in the hands of pastors all over Russia. As Markov drove off, I looked at Hans. He was still praying, but he was grinning too. This part of our mission was accomplished, except for that one carton of Ukrainian Bibles. Our green uniformed friend could peer as hard as he liked. The car was empty. We went home by way of the Ukraine, delivering the last Bibles to churches ourselves, and it was at one of these stops that a dream caught hold of me that for the next three years would not let go for it was there in the Ukraine, when we had just two Bibles left, that one of the parishioners brought something for us to see, a treasure of his family's, a pocket-sized Ukrainian Bible. I held the little volume in my hand, unbelieving. Yes, the man assured me, it was a complete Bible, but it was one quarter the size of the Bibles we had brought. I turned the Indian paper pages, marveling at the tiny type, so small and yet so sharp. Each word was clear and well-spaced. I bombarded the man with questions. Where had this been printed? Who published it? Where had they bought it? But he knew the answers to none of them. I couldn't lay the little book down. I hefted my, it in my hands. I slipped it into my pocket. I brought it out and held it up beside one of the standard Bibles. Why, we could bring in three or f and four times as many every trip if they were this size, and once again they'd be so much easier to transfer and conceal, and if it could be done for Ukrainian, Russian could be printed in this format too, and the far and the other East European languages. Seeing how the Bible intrigued me, the owner made a suggestion. If he could have the two new ones we had brought, would we like to keep this one? The church would still be one Bible ahead. To my delight, the minister and the rest of the congregation agreed, and I left that town with the dream in my pocket. I could hardly wait to show it to our Bible societies in the West. Our last Sunday in Russia, we attended a Baptist church in a Ukrainian village not far from the Hungarian border. The singing was stirring, the prayers fervent, 
But when it came time for the sermon, the pastor did a strange thing. He walked off the platform, borrowed a book from one of the congregation, and took it back to the pulpit. It was the Bible. We had heard that there were ministers in Russia who did not have Bibles of their own, but this was the first time we had seen it with our own eyes. After the service, the pastor invited us to join him and his elders in his study for a brief visit. The visit began, as it so often did in Russia, with an attack. We had learned that this was a safety device, since all pastors knew that their actions were observed. On this occasion, the attack was against my automobile. Tell me, the pastor said through a German-speaking parishioner, which industrial com complex are you the head of? But I'm not with any company. Our interpreter translated, but the pastor did not let the subject drop. I know you're not telling the truth, he said, for you have an automobile parked just outside. Only capitalists own automobiles. Laboring people walk. What could I do? It was impossible to convince him that I was a former factory worker, the son of a village blacksmith, with a good deal less guarantee of an income than he himself had. He just could not grasped these facts and left the subject only out of politeness, or perhaps because he felt that he had s safely established his antipathy for idle and m money classes. At any rate, we got to talking about the second coming of Christ, by far the most popular theological topic in Russia, and the tone of our conversation immediately changed. I drew my own Dutch Bible out of my pocket to follow the references he was making, and when he was through, laid it on the desk. I noticed almost at once that he had lost interest in the conversation. His mind was taken up with the Bible. He picked it up and weighed it in his hand, unzipped it, stared at the Dutch words he could not read, zipped it up again, then he put it back on the desk not as I had put it down, but with great precision. He set it down on the corner and slowly ran his finger along the edge so that it was aligned with the desk. And then, his voice distant, talking more to himself than to us, he said, You know, brother, I have no Bible. My heart broke. Here was this important man, the spiritual leader of a thousand souls, who did not own a copy of the Bible. All of the ones we had brought with us were gone, and then I remembered the little Ukrainian pocket Bible. Wait, I shouted. I jumped up from my chair. The Bible societies would just have to take my word for it. I raced outside to my car, threw open the door, got the little Bible from under the seat, and ran back to the study. Here, I shoved the Bible into the pastor's hand. This is for you to keep. The translator repeated the words, but still the pastor did not understand. Whose is it? he said. It's yours, to keep, to own. When Hans and I left that day, our chests ached from the embraces of that group of elders, for now their pastor had a Bible of his very own, a Bible he did not have to return at the end of the service, a Bible to pick up whenever he wanted, a Bible to read and to love. And as we left Russia 
I knew there was a task ahead of me bigger than any I had yet attempted behind the Iron Curtain. I had to talk some organization into printing Slavic language Bibles in pocket-sized editions, and I had to bring the, these Bibles into Russia, not by the hundreds, but by the thousands. Next time, Chapter 19, Bibles to the Russian Pastors.